Hi. Hi, how's it going? Not bad. This has been a, a lifetime in the making, I was going to say. <laughs> yes, sorry for harassing you over the last no, year. I've been, sorry for taking so long. Basically, everyone's spread out quite a lot these days. Um, yeah, it's been quite quite difficult to track everyone down. I did text the boys, um, Matthew and Jamie. Matthew is somewhere in North Germany. He lives in Hamburg now. So. Ah, okay. He, he was on holiday with his family who couldn't make it. And Jamie is is going to America, but he did kindly say that he saw the post and has added several annoying questions. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, uh, I think I'm going to change the format of this episode because I've got a lot of responses to that. So I want to oh, try, try and include as many. <laughs> well, it might be a fair few from him, yeah. But, uh, yeah, they're quite good questions. So. Oh, Trying to include quite a lot. Yeah, just obviously it's got like context and everything. Last like, I'm sure it's a question you got fed up, fed up of back in the day. But how did it all come together? Like, how did he go from starting the band to getting a record deal, kind of thing? Yeah, I was just because you sent me some of the questions. I was just having a look, and I was like, I was then trying to remember how it all began, and it was quite a really old school way of doing it well sort of and then sort of not we basically talked a lot about being in a band uh and how it was it sort of started like a bit of a joke and we 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 never i've never really been in a band before uh alan had never been in a band before jamie had done a little bit uh, like in various like uni bands and stuff and so had matthew um but you know we were just sort of friends we met through work and then pissed about and then we we did like a re- odd rehearsal. I think me and Matt, and then this other guy, just the three of us, not not Alan or Jamie, and we just tried it out, and then that sort of then went into us meeting up with Al and Jamie. And I think we had the name before we even rehearsed. I think we all really liked the Strokes, and then I think we were out one night. And we were really pissed, and then somebody was like, "We we're all really skinny. We were that." <laughs> would probably be called the bloody rakes or something like that and that's literally how it started there was nothing more to it and then because of that we always made up silly stories about how we actually got together so nobody you can't really find any real stories but that is the actual basic very boring story (laughs) um and then yeah from there we just like we got in a rehearsal room and then we just sort of just we wrote one song there that first and then the next rehearsal, we wrote another song and then we just kept doing that. And then we up to like two rehearsals a week and then pretty much, yeah, within, I think with, with every single rehearsal, we, we basically wrote, pretty much wrote a song um, on the first record. So it was all very, it just sort of gelled really naturally, um, happened really quickly. Then we sort of scraped some money together and recorded a demo and then in this like strange little very odd little studio near the old arsenal stadium it was called oilville i think it was in the sort of archways of the 
the railway and yeah did this demo it was like Strasbourg and Outland Mission which is like the b-side that we also used to play live quite a lot and then we literally super old school had it on cd we walked around different venues and handed it in and asked if we could play a gig and then we basically got gigs that way like super old school and then we sort of just kept gigging and just played live and played live and there wasn't really I mean, it sounds bad when you think about it because, you know, everyone's like, oh, I've been wanting to be in a band for years and years, but it, it wasn't really like that. It just sort of happened, uh, like, supernaturally. And then we did this first gig with, I think we were, like, uh, somehow we were headlining. I don't know how. It was upstairs at the garage in in Hibernissington, and we were, like, playing with the heavy metal band and this, like, Brazilian punk band that we ended up befriending. And... It was very odd, but it was just like it just sort of got together really quickly, and and from then on we just like booked in gigs all the time. So we just played live so much. And then what happened after that? Yeah, then um, Phil, uh, our manager, uh, sort of came about really unnaturally as well. He'd never been a manager. He worked in like sales or something. Um, and then he w- had gone to uni with. Alan and Jamie, I think that's how it went. Yeah, they'd gone to uni together in Brighton. So they, they sort of knew him. He was in bands as well, but that's sort why of I've never materialised. They were like trying to be the next Oasis or something. Didn't, didn't really happen. And then he was always really into bands. And then he he just started doing stuff for him. He was like, oh, you know, he's like probably the dealer. He's like the best guy to possibly become our manager. And we didn't really have to search for anyone and have to go through that whole thing of someone trying to like poach you or anything like that. It just sort of happened. And it was never even a conversation. I think the first time was we overheard, we were in a taxi going to like a gig or something, like with all the drums and like the amps and guitars. Actually, we didn't have any amps. So it must've just been like, it was actually Phil's drums. We didn't have any equipment. There's Phil's drums and just like this one guitar we owned and then overheard him on the phone talk to someone saying he was our manager. And it's like, what? (laughs) Oh, okay. I guess that's fine. And then it's all just like snowballed from there and then he got more gigs and then, yeah, it was just like one thing after another, just like a really natural build. Um, It sort of, yeah, it made me think a lot about the other question you asked about how how bands now do it today like you just couldn't do that anymore really you have to have the, everything there and then and, you know yeah hmm. it's very different so just going back to you say you know you're writing songs every practice is it quite like a democratic system for writing songs yeah i mean in the beginning it was like i think it was just like it was just that quite raw punky energy that we all sort of had you know, Matthew at the time would come in with something, just like play a couple of chords, and it was just quite, it was quite basic. And then we would just sort of join in and then work around that. It wasn't like a fully formed song, really. And then Alan would sort of like riff on that and had some some vague ideas for lyrics, and then that would sort of work around like Twenty Two Grand Job, which you may have heard of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Like he, he'd actually been for this interview at the day of the rehearsal and had basically gone for an interview in the city and had hoped to get it. He did, obviously didn't end up getting it because 
he probably he would have gone down that avenue instead. Um, and then he just came in having this sort of 22 grand job in the city. It's all right. Yeah, sure. And then it sort of just grew from there. And like, you can't, I mean, the, the chords itself, is, it's basically, it's like one chord. It's just, I think it just goes in E. I mean, I, I play drums, so what do I know? But um, um, it was just so basic and it was just like the thought, the speed of it and the fun and, it, and then it sort of just became this shouting thing and back and forth. So it just was like, I guess it was democratic because everyone was sort of just doing their thing. Um, which, yeah, it just, you know, sometimes it, these things just work. Um, and it did. Yeah, one of the questions was, do you, do you think uh, you'd be able to get by on 22 grand job in the city now? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's madness really to think about that's, what is that, 20 years ago now? 22, I mean, 22 grand, that's like what you start out on most places. But I mean, I guess, to be honest, probably not a lot of things have changed, but you couldn't really live in London anymore. Um, I mean, that was the other thing, you know, just looking at your questions, I was like, I don't know how, I really don't envy being in a band now. Like, it's just, especially, well, in London, really, it's like we, you know, we just lived in various weird places for no money, earning earning not a lot, and then managed to get by. But, like, you couldn't really do that now. You have to earn so much money just to live in London. You know, we used to live in... I lived in Hackney. Alan and Jamie lived in uh, what's it called, um, Swiss Cottage. Um, Matthew lived up in Hornsey, I think, somewhere. Like we all just lived in like sort of in the outskirts. Well, at the time, Hackney obviously was the outskirts, but nowadays, like you know, you've got to pay two grand for a flat. <laughs> yeah. I lived in, at the time, I lived with my girlfriend in this like weird. It was like an office. I think it was an old office or something had been converted and then it was just like had this it, you know it was just like i guess they called they called it a studio flat but it, it was just definitely not a studio flat it had a door that sort of, had a door in the kitchen that went out into the middle of the building but at like a three-story drop but the, there was just nothing there so we had to like whenever we had parties you had to like put a note on the door to not go out there <laughs> just like to die um and we paid like we paid 260 pounds a month you know, you can't do that anymore. So therefore, you know, we did these rehearsals. I think we paid £40 for a rehearsal um, for like four hours. And then we managed to do it that way. Mm. You can't really do that anymore. Obviously, there's bedroom. You can do bedroom sort of things, but it's not the same. Like to be a band band, it's just really, it must be really hard. I was listening to um, a song on his second album today called Leave the City and Come Home. And there's someone who's moved to London from like a northern city. Uh, I was actually laughing out loud at some of the lyrics because it's just very relatable. Yeah. Um, so I was enjoying yeah. that. <laughs> it's one of my favourite songs from, uh, from not one of my favourite albums of ours. I mean, we only did three, so, you know. But yeah, I really, I really, really love that song. I think it's really nice. Um, and I thought the other day, um, just because having arranged this, I was listening to, uh, I was listening to that Maxima Park's uh, first record and they've got like that last song as well which is like um, what's it called Acrobat and it's got this similar vibe of like slowed down which was a bit unusual for those bands around the same time um, and it reminded me that somebody ought to do like a playlist of 
sort of weird slow songs by otherwise fast bands mm. you can have that name if you want um. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean i saw an interview i was watching an interview i think it was with alan who said you try and keep things simple in terms of songwriting you wouldn't try and over complicate things was is that right yeah we yeah we didn't really i wouldn't say we ever did uh when you yeah the other question you asked was about the, sort of how did it evolved the songwriting process and I was thinking the second album definitely was a victim of that sort of, I think, you know, you, you do your first record and then you, you get into this or, you know, whatever happens and you want to either build on some elements of it. And we had a record deal and it was like, shit, we've got to do this. And the record company was getting involved. And then you can definitely feel elements of that. And we, you know, rather than actually taking the things that made us maybe started, all of a sudden you were like looking at your first record with slightly different eyes. So I would say the second record was probably overcomplicated in a lot of ways where we were like actually overcomplicating the songs and th overthinking them. Um, uh, so definitely on the first record, it was very much like that. And then the, on the third record, which is put my personal favorite, uh, probably not a lot of people heard it, but you know, that's always the case probably for some people. Um, yeah, it was like, then it went, then you, you know, again, you look with that sort of eye of being like, hang on, what are we actually trying to achieve? And what sort of band were we and what did we want to do? So it all went back to the sort of simplicity of it, um, but just with a bit more songwriting rather than just going into a room. Mm. Yeah, someone asked, I'm just trying to find, yeah, so Robin Jones on Instagram said, he remembers reading about, it being a bit of a struggle making that second album. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it was a struggle. I mean, it. we worked with two different producers. Um, and I think our record, it was sort of when, it was basically all the, all the sort of indie bands were coming up. So there was all of a sudden the pressure of like charts and, you know, you know, basically making a chart record and getting singles in the radio and all this sort of, the, the sort of transition into like having indie music on the radio all of a sudden. So therefore there was the added pressure of like, you've got to have a single, you've got to have this. Um, and it just, yeah, there was definitely, it was definitely harder because it was like, oh, you've got to write, you know, you've got to have a hit if you want. Um, but some, you know, song, songwriting doesn't work like that. Sometimes you don't know what is a hit. It just comes somehow. Um, so it, it was definitely hard. It just didn't feel as natural as the other two records in that respect. It was a little bit, it felt a little bit put together. Um, and I think maybe that's why it maybe didn't connect. But then other people, you know, that I've spoken to since, you know, since not being in the rakes anymore, and it's like, been like, oh, I love that record, you know. Like people people come into a band in different, at different times. So it's, it's hard to, to feel the same way that other do about something. So, so that you're so ingrained with. No, I was listening, obviously, to your stuff before the interview, and it's you know some very good songs on there for sure. The opening song's really good. Yeah, your hair is a mess. The world was a mess. Um, the world was a mess. I can't even. I should do my research before I do. This. <laughs> uh, yeah, world was a mess. I mean, that's that is a great song. Um, and we dance together. It's got some good pop sensibility, but it's probably a bit too down a certain line but you know it's not a bad song now i was thinking of suspicious eyes like that was quite it's quite an interesting concept that al had um perhaps not executed the best 
but you know there was some there was some interesting perspective in terms of what was going on in London and stuff at the time. Um, yeah, mm. and we got a very very young Laura Marling that he found on MySpace to sing on it somehow. I don't know how that happened. But... Yeah, someone was asking about that, like how that came came about. I think. I think someone from either our publisher or the record company was like, oh, this singer who's doing stuff on MySpace. MySpace was a social, uh, you know, social website for those who don't know. Um, <laughs> sorry, the death seems. Uh, yeah, this singer, and I think Al just like basically messaged her on that and then that was it. Oh, just, okay. Um, it was like really quite organic. It wasn't like a big thing um, um, obviously she's massive now and mm. she and then after that she did um she sung on 21 with uh, mr jess so, so she, uh, did, like, yeah. she did a couple of cameos i think and then she did her own, rec- her own stuff so, and then there's a, a rapper on that song as well um, yeah uh, rack um uh, rackstar yeah yeah rackstar i mean i don't think it was just because of the name that sounded slightly like the rakes uh, but uh i've uh, who did it? Yeah, Al did as well. I think Al just found him on basically on on MySpace. Uh, he was after to keep it fairly authentic. To, to basically wanted a young Asian rapper from from London, somebody who could sort of put themselves in in uh, that sort of those boots of of feeling judged upon, um, and then just found Rackstar. And I think he, yeah, he came on and did, we did the full version of that at Brixton Academy when we played that. And he came on and did it, which was great. Um, but, because otherwise most, I think, I think, can't remember if Al had a different version that would otherwise play live. Because I don't think he did the full rap. Um, I think he just did. He, he liked to say that if it was like a slightly rappy bit, it was a monologue. Because he couldn't bring himself to do that. <laughs> And I was reading, well, I either read it, I think, on NME.com. Quote from Matthew saying you're known as a bit of a boozy band. Would you Would we you were, agree with that? Yeah, I mean, we were a bit of a boozy band, definitely. I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with that. We liked it. I think also because that's how we met each other. We used to get out and get pissed and, like, you know, we were young. I mean, yeah, we were all quite boozy. I think I don't know. I don't think any bands from that era wasn't very boozy. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I wouldn't say we were like really debauched though. We wouldn't like trash hotel rooms. We were politely boozy. <laughs> That's the thing. Like never trashed a hotel room. I like to think. Um, but yeah, we, we would have a couple of drinks here and there. Did we do anything bad? I mean, there are. There's probably there's probably thousands of stories. Of us being slightly drunk, but like no, no really bad behaviour. I would say. Um, I mean, we did get an, a question from Alex Capranos. I did said, get a from Alex. <laughs> he said, uh, "I know back in the day, Lars used to pretend to be me to crash parties and get free stuff. Did he? <laughs> did he once get chucked out of Kate Moss's house for bad behaviour when in that mud?" Someone I met recently swear she was with me that night and saw it happen, but I wasn't there. <laughs> it was well. Alex said this. Yeah. So I got I got thrown out, and then mm, I mean it could have happened. No, the joke was that people used to think that I looked like Alex, and therefore would in the street shout, "Oi, Capranus!" 
No, they, I, they, I think they actually would call me Franz Ferdinand. Because <laughs> yeah. they obviously thought that his name was Franz Ferdinand. So then when we did a, we did a tour with the, uh, the Franz guys and, and then I think, yeah, the joke became that actually it became even worse because on the tour, it was a nightmare because I couldn't go anywhere because obviously we were just a support band. But I looked like, so whenever we went on stage, we wouldn't go and look, watch the band. But obviously people would go like, yeah, can we have a photo? And I was like, it's obviously not me. Because they're, <laughs> playing, they're playing on stage right now. So it makes no sense that, you know, luckily since my lockdown haircut, um, that shouldn't be a problem anymore. <laughs> but, yeah, you know. okay. So I, I'm trying to remember this story. So what was Alex doing? I want to know what Alex was doing at Kate Moss's house. No, he, so he's saying that you basically got into her party, pretended to be him and then got thrown out. <laughs> I don't even remember being at her party, but I mean, maybe I'd like to, I'm going to message him and find the rest of this story. <laughs> Cause he says, he caveated that by saying, unless it was me and I just blotted it from, from my memory. So maybe. <laughs> maybe it was him. <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't have gotten in if he pretended to be me. Then. So <laughs> he must have pretended to be himself, which probably worked. <laughs> uh, did you have a, a lot of good relationship with bands back in the day? Like, you know, people like the Paddington's always spoke highly of you kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, the Paddington's were lovely. We love those guys. Uh, yeah. I mean, you sort of asked whether we were part of a scene. We didn't really feel part of a scene when we were getting started because as I said, there was like, there was like so many, so many weird bands we ended up playing with. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, hang on a minute, there are the guitar bands. And then we started meeting, uh, you know, there's Block Party, Maximum Park, and you'd see these other bands and meet up with them. And yeah, we we hung out with them at festivals. There definitely was a, a like we were part of something, but I wouldn't say it was a scene necessarily. We weren't part of like say the I know there was like a whole libertine sort of thing, but we didn't really we didn't really know those guys at all. I would say we were more part of of like other L- London sort of um, bands like Art Brood and who else was there? That we met like Claw. Do you remember Claw? Yeah, I remember having a really good single. Yeah. I mean, they had some great songs as well. So yeah, been, yeah. You know, we, you'd bump into people when you were doing other stuff and then you'd see them, they would get like a bit of coverage here and there. Um, I guess it wasn't as saturated as now or just, yeah. You just see these other bands around and, you know, everyone was really nice guys. So it was quite easy to, just, you know, see them here and there. Like Luke Maximum Park, I've, I've seen quite, he's moved to Australia now, but I've, I've hung out with quite a bit. He ended up sort of re-met him after leaving and, uh, band and because he was a friend of a friend. Um, obviously, Alex uh, from Capranos, from Capranos, <laughs> from Fans yeah. from Capranos, whatever. Uh, <laughs> seen those around. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to. Ha- I mean, with anything, it's easy to hang out with nice guys or or girls. Um, yeah, yeah, it's all pretty organic kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And then in terms of that first album. Recording with Paul Epworth, like obviously prolific producer, and like he was starting out at that time, I guess. But what was he like to work with? He was great. I mean, Paul, he was like hot on the. I mean, he was, you know, he'd done everyone. I think he'd finished the block party. He's done. He'd done. 
what other record he had. I think he finished Future Heads and possibly been Maximum Power. He was doing Us and White Rose Movement at the same, sort of slightly overlapping, I believe. Um, but yeah, he was great. I mean, he just got it. He got us as a band and then he added a few flourishes afterwards rather than overthinking it too much and then and then sort of bringing it back together afterwards. Like he, he yeah, he was really good. And then he was just like really tight. And everyone always says that record, that first record, oh, it just sounds so live and so like fresh. But like of the three records, it's like, it's actually quite produced. Like everything is like, all the drums have like been like really compressed and like like cut up. Everything is just like quite double take. The vocal spend loads of time on it. So it's just a really, it's just a really nice way of recording. And he, yeah, nice guy. He was a bit of a party boy back then. I doubt he <laughs> as much uh, these days. Um, but he, again, he was also just a really cool guy and like such a nice guy. You know, we'd go for drinks and again, it just makes everything so much easier. And I think also that made the second album a lot harder because, you know, um, Paul was starting out at the time. So we were all sort of excited about what was happening. Uh, but then on the second record, it was like, you know, we went in with different producers, you know, and they were great producers, but it, it didn't have that same excitement that the first one had. Um, but yeah, it, it is incredible now that, that Paul has gone on to, to make the records he had. It's, I mean, he must, he must be probably the biggest producer these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, when it comes out, that first album, it's get like nine out of ten in in enemy, getting to the top forty. Like, what are your thoughts at that time? You kind of is it hard to process, or what? Or what kind of thing? Oh, what the the reviews? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was. It's so. I mean, it's great. That's the thing. It's great when people love something. That's the main. You know, I think. Some of the reviews are funny. Like when you look back at them, I think the enemy one says like staggering or something like that. <laughs> like, really? It's like, I don't know about that, but you know, it's a good record. There's some good stuff on it. I don't know if I would use the word staggering. <laughs> um, and like, I think sometimes it's just what people connect with. Um, yeah, it's really hard. <sighs> but I mean, music is so weird because it's like we've, we were, we were, as I said, we were doing it for fun. We were just what was like, we were just doing our own thing. And then people were just connected with it. And we weren't, I wouldn't say we were the best musicians at all by far. Um, you know, there were some bands out there with absolutely incredible musicians. Um, we, just, we just had an energy and we just loved playing live. And I think we, we had that nat natural organic growth and Actually, in the at the end of the day, it was like it was just nice to connect with people who were into music, um, mm. and then the reviews sort of come second. And it's annoying that you have to then you then get you know you have to on the second record you have to then again get these reviews, and if they don't if they don't like match up and aren't as good, then everything you know you get down or you get high when people are really into it or I don't know. Reviews should be banned, I think. <laughs> People should review, or it should be less fickle. It feels mm -hmm. like there's always so many things about reviewing. I don't really read reviews so much these days of like music. Um, I think that's probably the best thing to come out of, of like 
things like Spotify and stuff. You can you can consume in a more natural way without having to read the reviews first. Um, yeah, I know you mean it's like recommended in a different way. Just yeah, it's left it's, up to you, kind of thing. Yeah, it's recommended by an algorithm mm. who gives you know, and it goes, oh, staggering. The algorithm says staggering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the Mark Beaumont algorithm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, so, how long are you able to enjoy? that first album and how it's how it's going how it's been received sorry before you start thinking right yeah we need to follow this up kind of thing well we i think we 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 basically ended up doing a single in between that and the second record so we i'm trying to remember now so this the first record came out i think it's a te- like autumn 2005 and then yeah, we started recording it at the end of 2006. So we basically did like a full sort of cycle. And then, then I think the, yeah, it all, it feels like forever, but actually it happened quite quickly because we did a, a single in between. So we, we were sort of like trying to keep the momentum going, but actually, I'm not, yeah, thinking back, maybe that's exactly the opposite of what we should do, but you know. You live and you learn. I mean, as you said, is there anything you would have done differently? Um, like, probably take time on the second record. What are you actually wanting to do? Don't get caught up in all that mm. um, momentum because, I mean, it rarely, it rarely produces better songs. And especially, we were touring so much on that first record. Um, you know, doing all in tours, then we're doing festivals, and then you know there isn't much time to really actually like even have an idea of what you want to do. Um, and then you know, back to the review thing, it's also then everyone's saying how bloody amazing you are, or uh, whatever it is. And then you you know you get built up, and then you have these ideas, and then you go like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm going to write this. I'm going we're going to do a next record. It's going to be like a sort of a pub indie record, and it's and it's like, hang on a minute, I wish somebody had been like, guys go back and listen to that first record. It's like, what is, what were you sort of doing? And why don't you continue with that? And then see, you know, nobody has to like invent the wheel on the, on the second record. You can do that on the third or fourth if you really, if you really must. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. I always thought the way the strokes did, it was pretty good. Just like fire out a second one that's pretty similar sounding, that's yeah. still a strong kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And then they tried to do something really different. Well, not really different, but like long versions of, of their two first albums. <laughs> like some of those songs in the third album, I was just like, wow, this is a really long song. But again, there's some great songs. Mm. I love that. Um, you only live, uh, you only live, is it once? Yeah, you only live yeah. once. Amazing song. But I guess it's different for different bands, isn't it? I guess some exactly. don't, don't have the opportunity to like fire out another one. Yeah. Speaking of festival, you mentioned festivals and... Pete Shep on Twitter said, I'd like a detailed account of the day of the Reading Festival show when Alan couldn't perform. Were you worried you'd have to pull out and then other bands stepped in to help? Or did you know a few days before? It was a 16-year-old kid, 16-year-old indie kid's dream. Well, the, the actual gig. Well, I mean, the the gig, we Alan, Alan knew, we, we knew Alan couldn't make it for personal reasons quite early on. Uh, which is not my place to go into to that. Uh, and we we just released the, the um, no, we must have been about to release. It must have been 2005. So we must have been about to release the, the record. So it was a, a big moment for us. And we sat down and we're like, what the hell are we going to do? Uh, Matthew obviously occasionally sung, 
but at the same time probably wouldn't sing the whole set and then we sort of just asked i mean i don't know how we got away with it (laughs) can we we asked the promoters like can we perform but we're gonna ask different people to sing it and we did um and then kelly was up for it and i've been leads i think uh paul from maximum park sung um who was towers of london sang i'm trying to there was a whole load i think russell came on as well from block party there was like a whole load of people that came on and just stepped up and was like actually this is pretty fun and it was like the nicest thing ever and it was really fun and it would probably be nowadays be any a and r man's worst nightmare (laughs) what the hell is going on this doesn't sound like the record but it sort of it didn't matter and we did it uh it wasn't i wouldn't say that's a detailed thing but it was really quite organic and then i mean towers of london they seemed to just be i don't know how but they were just the biggest fans of the band from very early on we shared management company with them so they would always turn up to the gigs super nice guys um and they would just always be up for it so they we you know Donnie just was like, I have to sing. I have to, I have to do this song. So he did. Um, and it was great. Yeah. It was, it was very organic. It just felt, it just felt like something that you wouldn't see these days. I think it just mm. feels very commercial these days. I couldn't see that happening with a lot of bands, but maybe, maybe I'd be, I'd love to be proof on for that. Yeah. I'd love to hear a recording of that. If it's, if there is someone, I think even I might have sung a song. All right. <laughs> Which is not good. I mean, yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a very good uh, even voice recording voice. Um, I think Jamie used to say I sound a bit like a quacking duck, which is no. Wow. <laughs> so, um, so even my singing voice must have been even more horrendous. I always like to ask people about playing Jules Holland as well because, as a fan of like those bands. Um, I just imagine if I was in that situation, I'd find it quite nerve-wracking, but how did you find it? Yeah, but back then as well, I mean, uh, it was quite a weird Jules Holland. Um, loads of stuff happened, but it was pre-recorded, which was good. Ah, right. It wasn't live live. I think nowadays they do one pre-recorded and one live. I can't remember. But this was pre-recorded, but loads of shit went, just went a bit weird. So... First of all, I mean, the funniest thing was we had to, you know, the, the jam thing in the beginning where everyone has to be like playing together and it, and Jules comes up and he's like, yeah, okay, you know, I'm not going to do my impression. Of <laughs> but he was like, okay, everyone's going to play in D and we're just going to jam and like Matthew and, and James just look at each other. It's like, what's D? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Which one is D? Which one is D? So they sort of just wing it and managed to find a D. As I said, we weren't the, the best of musicians, but we sort of winged a lot of it. Later on, they discovered D, I'm sure, but uh, <laughs> this was quite early on. So that was quite funny. And then uh, we did our performance and then halfway through, uh, I think it's like, I can't remember, if it, I think it might have been 22 grand job. Uh, my drum monitor falls on me, it's on a stack. And I'm like, this thing is like crushing me. And I'm like, am I gonna continue this, this performance and i have to stop it i'm I'm really sorry but i'm getting completely squashed by this thing that's falling (laughs) on but luckily it wasn't live so that was quite weird i mean it's just nerve-wracking doing those those performances sometimes and also think i think it doesn't always necessarily suit our music um 
like it always doesn't quite have the same feel and sound to it uh, and also we always played so much faster when we played live um, I think if you ever listen on YouTube to any like live gigs of ours it sounds like we're all like taking so much speed <laughs> we haven't but it it's a lot faster I think we used to play like 20 songs in like an hour for our sets um and it, yeah it's quite breakneck but it was like you know it was the energy um what else happened uh richard hawley was playing and his drummer like had a heart thing or something like that so they had to take him off and then jules's drummer had to walk on so the whole thing was a felt quite sort of mashed together anyway so it sort of took a lot of this sort of live and and pressure of it off which was good um but yeah those are never those are never that fun i don't really like the the, the live tv performances well there's another one i was watching where you ended up doing a, a collaboration on a david bowie song with lily allen i mean that is the single worst i mean that's the the live butchering of of david bowie that should never have taken place um i think we tried to do an we were going to do a squeeze record a uh, squeeze song um, but it was for French TV, TV, and they they didn't know who Squeeze was. So, right. and it was like we were, I think we wanted to do Up the Junction, which is a great song. It would have been much more suitable for us. And then we ended up doing, um, we ended up doing that song with Lily. And oh, I mean, I wish you. I mean, it's that's what YouTube should take down. <laughs> if anyone listens to this, go and watch it, and then you should see something that should never ever happen again. Especially because we all—I mean, we all love Bowie, so it's not—it's like it's not like we don't love that song. It's not our favorite song, but it's—it's it's an absolute butchering. And then you—you just—I mean, as I said before, you just get roped into these things. It's like, yeah, you got to do it, man. You got to do it. Lily Allen, she's she's doing big stuff, and then it's like, and then you're like, what the hell? And then you watch it back, and you're like, oh my god, what the hell is this? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm—I'm I'm assuming you're not a big fan of that cover either. I well, <laughs> yeah, like you said, there's probably other songs that were better suited. I was just interested, like, oh, why we chose that? Song. How last minute it was, and like, who whose idea it, it was? was really last minute, we did a, we did a. I think we were going out to Paris to film the show Ratata, and it was really, really last minute. And you have to do this. You have to basically do a collaboration. Um, and Jamie and Lily knew each other quite well, so. It was just like came about quite naturally. It's like, oh, let's do this song, and it's like, what should we do? Um, but it also didn't. It's in so many ways it didn't suit. You know, our Alan's voice. You know, Alan's singing is like a lot more like less singy and more like sort of punky. Um, and Lily's got like this amazing voice. It, it's on so many levels. It's just so jarring. Um, but we decided to do it anyway, and you know, you have to live with these things. Yeah, but, yeah, and then. At least, you know, you can laugh about it this many years later. I mean, it's not that bad. <laughs> it's one of the worst things. I think it's also because we all really love, you know, we loved Bowie so much. So it's like, like, yeah. Yeah, you're always going to be self-critical when doing something like that, yeah. Yeah. And you obviously, like, weren't scared of doing collaborations. You did one with Lethal Bizzle for 22 grand. So Danny Nichols asking about that on Instagram. Yeah, how did that come about? I mean... Uh, Lethal basically, he just, it was sort of, there was a whole, he was obviously been doing grime for a while and then the whole sort of Grindy came about, the very short lived mashup. 
movement, shall we call it. Um, and I had basically heard the song, wanted the parts, and then just did this. He basically did the whole thing himself. I wouldn't say it's a really cool collaboration, but Luther was like, it's he's like, again, just such a nice guy. He, we were doing some recording in London and he came to the studio and he was like, I'm just going to do a video. Hope that's all right. It's like, what, like a music video. It's like, yeah, yeah, just you're going to all go to me in. Matthew had left at this point. So if you ever, I don't know if it's still on there, but if you can find the video for this, the mashup, um, you'll notice that it's actually not Matthew, but somebody dressed really quite badly like Matthew, <laughs> yeah, who was a friend of Jamie's. Um, the whole thing was just like really put together last minute. But again, uh, it was a, it was a great it was a great mashup. Like it was just like, again, it happened really natural. He just basically took the parts, mashed them up, wrapped over the top and that was it. And then just took the chorus. And again, I think the following, it must've been the following year after the Reading uh, and Leeds that I could make, we, we did, we did actually a version with Bizzle uh, on, uh, on stage, which was oh, great. Right. Um, which was really fun. He came on and then he, we basically, we saw, did a, I don't want to say mega mix, but it, it <laughs> we did a mega mix um, of of the uh, twenty two grand job and and Diesel Bissell. Yeah, cool. And also his lyrics are great. And then I ended, I think I ended up doing a video with it with Lethal for he did Police on My Back um, later on that I started. Like there was a load of me, Drew from Baby Shambles, and um, Dan. What was he? I can't remember his. And anyway. We ended up in his video for for this other cover he was doing. So he yeah. did a few things. Yeah, it just felt. I mean, as I said, it just felt so much more. You don't have to go through all the rigmarole of like, like labels and all this stuff. We was like, do you want to do this? Yeah, sure. Why not? And you just did it. Mm. Nowadays, it doesn't feel quite like that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Twenty Two Grand Pod. If Naughty's Guitar Music is your thing, then you might enjoy our Patreon page, where for £3 a month you will get access to the following series. The Naughty's Deep Dive, where we go through the likes of the Stalking Pete Doherty documentary in painful detail. My favourite 2000s album, where patrons and other guests come on to talk about their favourite album of the era. Legend or Landfill, in which we go through Enemy's top 10 albums of each year from 2001, and see if we think they are indeed legendary or for the landfill. Unsigned Stories, where we chat to bands that didn't quite make it in terms of signing that elusive record deal. We also have Fan Stories, where I talk to people about their memories and opinions on all things Naughty's Indie. You also get early access to any main podcast episodes, and it's also worth checking out the YouTube page, where you can see extended video versions of the interviews, as well as plenty of other bits of commentary and opinion. All links are in the description. Now back to the pod. And just for that second album, obviously mentioned it briefly, um, but I just want to talk about the producer because Jim Abyss, he, he produced First Arctic Monkeys album. Um, yeah. So obviously must have been pretty in demand at that point. What was he like? How was he different to say Paul Epworth? Well, Jim was a really nice guy. Uh, a really good producer but he had done a lot of stuff he'd done the Kasabian record he'd done obviously before that he'd done loads he'd done Monkeys and then he'd done loads of stuff before then so he was just like quite seasoned and quite um, he just had a lot of experience and we how can I put this in and not sounding really unprofessional we were quite a jovial band 
So like we would like joke around in the studio and do all these things. And like, sometimes we'd take the piss out of him a bit. I think we ended up nicknaming him Fathers for Justice. Sorry, Tim, if you're listening. I think it was a time when the guy dressed up as Batman hanging outside Parliament. I don't know. <laughs> right, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Um, and like Jim was a nice guy, but I, yeah, I think he just didn't, we just didn't quite gel. So it was a bit of friction. We, we, he, his production was was really good but yeah yeah it just wasn't it wasn't perhaps just quite right i'll probably get slaughtered for saying all this stuff but it doesn't matter i'm not i'm not doing music these days so who cares um <laughs> but like i think we spent like two days and god knows how much money on on building a metal shed like i'm out of like um what's it like garage metal plates around the drum to sound, make the drum sound like we recorded in a garage. And we were all like, we're in this church. Why, why didn't we just record it in a garage? <laughs> if you want it to sound like a garage, we can just do that, can't we? And it's like, and it was like, well, you know, I've done all this. And I was like, okay, let's just do that. <laughs> um, but again, I think it's just one of those things you you sort of, you just, you just go with it. Mm. You know? um, Did you but, have all the songs ready to go when you got to the studio? Were you like working on some when, when you're in there? No, we, we did it quite, we did some stuff uh, in this church studio. I can't remember what it's called. It's probably called the church somewhere. I can't really remember where it was. So we did some stuff there and then we had a writing period because as I said, we were on tour all the time. So we had, didn't have all the, the bits. So Jim mainly did, I think this is also why this song, the album itself sounds a bit like disjointed. Jim did the more sort of singly singly songs. And then we worked with Brendan Lynch on who'd done uh done like Scrimadelica, I think. Uh has he done Scrimadelica? He'd done some primal screen and some other bits. Um and he did this sort of it just felt a bit disjointed. Um and because of that, we didn't have all the songs. Um we also had some ideas, I think, because of the way we'd worked with Etworth, that it was like, actually, we want to do, we, we had this annoying term that then later got really banned on the third record. It's like, oh, let's try and do this in production. And it was like, don't ever say that. Like, have a song, fully formed, and then you go and record it, and then some something can happen in when you're recording it, but don't, like, leave stuff to the last minute. As in, we should have definitely done more than we did. In, I would say in hindsight. Um, um, and I think some of the, the aspects I'm less happy about on that record definitely comes out because of that, just because you feel like, shit, why didn't we, why didn't we spend more time on honing it? What was your reaction like to the, to the album coming out? Obviously hard to follow that first album, like you said. Yeah, I mean, I think some people were just, I think they expected more of the same and we, and it, I think what attracted to us in the first place then felt a bit like, oh, these, it felt, it perhaps sounded a bit more like we were trying to get on the radio, which I mean, in fairness, we were. Um, and therefore it didn't quite, sometimes you just know it doesn't, it just felt a bit not, not that it wasn't us necessarily. Um, and I think sometimes you can hear that. You know, you can hear when a, when a, when a record from a band is like, oh, that, that wasn't quite, that didn't quite gel. Uh, 
and it was obviously obviously a massive bummer because when you're like shit you have all, all these great reviews and when you're on cloud nine from the first record and then all of a sudden people are like well no this is this is not as good as it could be then you've been but you know some people thought it was good but it did feel it wasn't it just wasn't right it was it just wasn't good enough i think it was also that thing of when you're you're trying to have one foot in in the first record and then you're trying to be a little bit pop and then you basically end up in no man's land um and I also at the time indie indie bands were like so on the rise then that you know it was there was more bands around everyone was trying to you know go for their radio slots and all the uh tv or whatever all this stuff things were just happening a lot more so therefore it was a lot harder to to get in and you know when you're on your second record you're not new anymore so you've got to just like you've got to get it right and you know it's fair to say that we didn't get it right in my opinion some people like it And now I saw you doing some very cool stuff. Like I saw you headlined a tour in South America and been watching, you know, like the Stro. It always seems like when you see videos on YouTube of festivals in South America, they're always the most wild. <laughs> like, yeah. What was it like playing there? Yeah, we did. We did. Like, we did Brazil. Brazil was amazing. Like just like I think with everything you go, just America in general, like North and South. You go there and you're like, how are these people, you know, it's different back then. It's like, how do these people know about this music? And they, you know, they're singing along, they're just going ape shit. And then, yeah, it's in Brazil uh, or South America, they're like, they just love it because bands don't make their way there that often. So when they do, and I think also a band of our size, that's perhaps not, you know, they obviously get U2 all the bloody time. Um, and they're probably going like, oh God, it's U2 again. And it's like, oh no, wait, here's, you know, here's a small indie band. And it was like, it, you know, it's a different thing to have a bit more, a bit more of a smaller band turn up who you probably wouldn't say. So it was great. Yeah. We had an amazing time. Fans were great. I'm trying to remember anything about it. But <laughs> it uh, I think we played like Sao Paulo and Rio. Um, couple, it was like festivals, I think. Yeah. It was really good um yeah just have a, had a really good time mm. some bits are a bit of a blur i'm just trying to, <laughs> yeah. trying to piece everything together you mentioned north america because so i read something like at one point you stepped in for happy mondays in new york or something is that right yeah maybe i mean i can't remember that i need to read that where's that i'm just made a note of it it must have been in on nme.com but uh yeah you replaced happy mondays in new york and you played with another band i can't remember who it was but it sounded pretty good <laughs> i mean new i mean when you said what were the highlights and like playing cmj that first time um was just really awesome i can't remember it must have been 2000 and uh, maybe 2005 um it was just that feeling of being a new band in some ways again uh, you're playing small venues, which I always think was by far our best times of playing like little little venues, just getting everyone you know crammed in little places around New York and just like you know playing great little sweaty shows. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if any bands could make a living doing that, they should do it forever. 
I'm not bothered about maybe bothered with festivals here and there, but don't bother about the big tours. It's not it's not as fun. It never is. Unless you're a, unless you're Arcade Fire, maybe, but not if you're like a small guitar band. Brian Droll on Twitter. Why did they pick Tom Cruise and why was it lies when he was crying? So that I believe, I mean, Al can correct me if he wants, but uh, the song uh, the song was sort of inspired by by just media in general, uh, just projecting um, different feelings, emotive feelings when uh, you know whether it's Fox News or whatever it is. We were in Sweden when the the, the tube bombings and the bus bombing happened in in July um, in two thousand and seven. And it was just that sort of feeling of like completely lost and all we couldn't get a hold of any of our family back in London. And we, all we had was basically CNN and it was just like projecting all this like ridiculous um, over the top Americanized version of what was going on. Oh my God, you know, everyone's. Um, so it was like that mixed. And then he sort of projected that onto a scene in Magnolia when he sort of, I think he sort of basically moved the two and then how actors act uh, and how basically, you know, this is me explaining, you know, I'm just a bloody drummer, but um, <laughs> yeah, basically he, it was the idea that uh, media uses the same techniques as an actor would uh, to evoke emotive feelings when they're explaining news. If that if that is a the sort of short version of a really broad question, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, got a few questions about Alan's dancing, like how if it was all natural or whether anything it was thought out, kind of thing. It was very much not thought out. Um, everyone always says, "Oh, he looks a bit like you know, it's a bit like Ian Curtis," but this, I mean, not the sad truth, but the truth is. He, we tried, I think the very, very first re- rehearsal we had, he was going to play guitar. And then we were like, actually, we just, let's just do one guitar. One guitar, one bass, drums. Um, and so when we, we, we did, wrote all the songs and when we finally got to play live, he was like, what the hell am I going to do? So then he just, he just did that, dancing. I don't think, I, I feel like, you know, it's a, it's a bit of, I wouldn't. Some of the moves that Alan had would probably be a, be a bit beyond Ian Curtis. I mean, <laughs> some of them are quite quite. I think I've definitely seen the worm a couple of times. <laughs> no and, way. And, and various leg humping of uh, of both Jamie and Matt. So, you know, it was. I think it was just like it's just to have a bit of a laugh most mm. of the time. It wasn't in any way as choreographed or serious. Uh, it really wasn't that thought out. I know that sounds just like we didn't care, but we did obviously care. We just didn't care about what we looked like or, you know, not until later. In the beginning, it was just like, let's just have fun. And I think I think in some ways that's a lot of the time that's what connected the band because we weren't these brilliant musicians, but that's what connected us to people watching us is that we looked like that we were having fun so people just had fun. Mm. Whereas most of the time, if people look like they're in a serious band and everything's like quite moody and, oh my God, these guys are so cool in so many ways, then everyone sort of becomes a bit apprehensive of, of 
they don't really want to dance or they don't really want to do anything. So the more fun we had and like looking like we had a good time, then people just had more of a good time. And then everyone's had a good time, man. <laughs> that reminds me, you know, just obviously watching all your stuff again, kind of a similar vibe to Art Brute in the way, you know, you, yeah, were, exactly. you were quite self-aware and that you were having a laugh essentially. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, being in a band is just like one of the most ridiculous things in the world. <laughs> And it's much worse when you're also a big fan already of Spinal Tap and then you become in a band and you rewatch Spinal Tap and then you go like, oh my God, somebody nailed this in so many ways. Like, you know, it's like, oh, I'd love to stay and chat, but I'm going to go hang out in the lobby. And it's like all the waiting around and like not, not being able to find the stage. I mean, so many dumb things have happened on tour where you're just like, really? How is this a real thing? Like we played, we did like South by Southwest in America and we did an interview and we turned up like straight out of bed and our, we, we'd been told by our tour manager it was for like some blog or something. And we turned up and it was like BBC six o'clock news and we were like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> you know? And we went to, we went to Japan for one show, which is like, really? it's, in itself idiotic um and the night before so we went there we landed went to bed and then the show was the next day and our tour manager went out that night with his friend who was the manager of slipknot and we never saw him we couldn't find him so we were, we were there for one show and we were like we were in the we were like we don't know how to get to the venue it was like you know it's just like every, your life just becomes a bit like, what the hell are you doing? You become, you're now a grown man in the nappy, like trying <laughs> to find, find your way anywhere. And you're like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> um, so, yeah, not being in a band is sort of like slightly having to grow up and like brush your own teeth. Yeah, a few people have said that, like either when the band stops or when they come off a major label, it's like a bit of a reality check. Yeah, yeah I mean, we weren't really... We never really managed to have loads of dosh, which was quite nice. So I think that was because of Phil, our manager. He was such a really dealer that he he kept a really tight leash on anything. So right till the end, we were like we got given so little money, which was great. He really he really made it. He really stretched it, and I definitely have to thank him for that because I don't think we were really in that much. I mean, we had been like, oh, well, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so. Yeah, I could imagine though if you just get given carte blanche of all the all the money, then it doesn't last very long. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bradley Higgins on Twitter says, "Yeah, you're talking about like the funny stories you used to come up with when people used to ask how you formed." He said, "Is there a, a funniest one that stands out that you told someone?" Yeah, I mean, there's one. I think there's one of them is that I think one of them is really stupid. That is Matt. I think it's Matt. The story we told someone that the, that we met by Matt Allen and Jamie were on an EasyJet flight, and I was one of the the fl- like flight attendants. <laughs> I, don't know, I mean, it didn't go from there. That was literally just it, and we would just constantly make stuff up. What else? Yeah, we had really some of them were just really stupid. <laughs> I'm really. Trying. I'm gonna have to Google this. I should basically have googled it. Um, no, that's all right. There are some really shit ones. I mean, not shit, just like really stupid. 
Uh, I haven't even seen how did the rakes did the rakes form. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you can't even find anything about the band if you search that. So there's that. Um, sorry, Bradley Higgin. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, the flight center one. I think that Jamie also made one up about that they all fancied my sister. I seem to always be the butt of these jokes, but yeah. <laughs> I think that's the drummer's job, really. Um, ben Piss... Whoa, I'll to say that again. Ben Pick Sock on Twitter says, what's the best rake song and why is it the 18-minute version of The World Was a Mess but his hair was perfect? Well, I mean, that is a, that is a good... That's not a bad one. I mean, it was... Uh, I think the Pennington's did this as well, actually. We were asked by the creative director of uh, Christian Dior who was basically doing like fashion shows to be like can you do this song and we were like oh, we don't have time we don't want to do it and obviously our manager was like what no you've got to do it it's like and then he asked again and it was like no we just we don't want to do it and then it was like and then the third time it's like oh fuck's sake okay we'll do it and then we went in with I think it was Al who was Paul Edwards assistant for quite uh, a few tracks and we just went in and we recorded this thing uh, and it we had it was like a brief um it had to be 17 minutes long it had to have like certain crescendos um and then yeah we just came up with different parts and then that, that's sort of how that song came about which is a good i mean i have to say matthew is the king of the riffs i mean you know the world was a mess that's an awesome riff um and i mean there's numerous other riffs he's a riff master the riff. <laughs> um I yeah think, the macbook one's good as well enjoying that today uh, yeah light light from your mac yeah that's a great one um i think that's actually al wrote that bit the, the you mean the bass part mm. yeah so that al wrote that bit um that just having a repeating bass line there's, I mean, there's, there's, I think my personal favourite is actually Shackleton on the third record. I think um, I was always, or no, I was going to say I was always, but that's definitely not true. I became a very big, um, what are they called, television fan. And therefore, I think it was a great way that we, of, of having those slight elements of almost, I don't want to say proggy because prog is a bad word, but they were <laughs> like, can you say post-punk prog? I guess you can. Um, there are those slight elements of just having like more of a journey to a song, which was very unlike for us. I mean, we always had like, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus sort of thing. And that song was very much the opposite, but at the same time felt very concise. Um, so I, yeah, I really like Shackleton and I think Alan's lyrics on that is, are really good. And Matthew's playing is bang on as well. Uh, and Jamie had a bass. Um, that was always a joke. And that was actually one of the. That was actually one of the. Um, that was one of the stories about how we got together. Um, I think we used to say, you know, Matthew, very good at guitar, very thoughtful. You know, like had all these crazy good riffs. Alan, very talented lyrics. Uh, Lassa, you know, very energetic drumming, playing hard. And Jamie, he had a bass. <laughs> Uh, occasionally Jamie got the butt as well so <laughs> uh, Ben also asks who would win in a fight between 
The rakes and the ludes. I don't know if there's a story there or something. God, the ludes. We yeah, that was an early tour. Who did we? Who did were we on tour with? Can't remember who. Was that an others tour? Maybe it might have been an others tour. I can't remember. Anyway, we shared a, a bus with ludes. Uh, I mean, to be honest, they would probably win. I think most most people win in a fight with us. <laughs> um, I don't think any of us are really good. For, I mean, also we're incredibly skinny and bony. <laughs> like, get a few elbows in. Yeah, I mean, maybe that. Yeah, maybe if if three of us get together and swing the last one, then maybe. But I think Luz would probably win. <laughs> yeah. yeah fair. Yes, yeah, wanted to ask about the twenty-two gram. No, this is twenty-two grand pod. Twenty-two grand job video. Like, how surreal was it? Filming that with those glamour models and stuff. There, to be fair, they weren't glamour models. I had right, to right. Might edit that out. <laughs> there were dancers that we had found. Um, uh, yeah, they weren't quite glamour models. <laughs> they weren't glamour models, I should say. Uh, yeah, it was great. I mean, again, uh, we worked with these. Oh, I can't remember. We worked with these couple of um, video guys because Al quite often had really quite good ideas for videos and. Eric Price had done that Call On Me song. Uh, so we thought it would be funny to do a sort of parody that mixed with The Office. Right. Um, and then incorporating the sort of like dance elements and stuff on that. Um, so that's why that video came about. Um, I mean, it was quite sur- surreal, um, but it was really funny. But again, like, it's a funny one with that one. So again, the label got involved they were like oh you know the song isn't long enough so if you listen to that version of the song it's got like this weird guitar solo in it that's like nowhere to be seen it's like oh it's not quite long enough so they added this guitar solo and then they were like oh but the breakdown you can't have too long you know you can't have too much of not having enough music or lyrics or radio so we're going to cut that in half so it's like well so you just expanded it and then you cut it in half um yeah the video itself, it was good. It was it was just like one day. It was fun. Um, it was fairly surreal. But making videos is just a quite a weird thing anyway. I don't know. Have we made any good videos? I think my favorite videos is the one for Strasbourg, personally, because we did it in a couple of hours around Alan and Jamie's flat when they were in the middle of painting it. Right. So... Um, I don't, I mean, their neighbours must have gone apeshit because we were playing, we were playing everything as is, just to like a slight tape. And we had this guy who ended up, this guy called Mark, who ended up doing like visuals later on tour, just literally shot this video. I mean, I don't know if you've seen it. It's so homemade. There's one bit where we walk up to a van that was parked down in the yard, like in the sort of underneath the flats and pretend that we're going into it, but actually it wasn't our van. We had nothing to do with it. And then the next shot is us pretending to be like in this van, but it's actually back up in the flat with the sofa and two mattresses sort of shot in between. (laughs) It's, It's very homemade, but it's really, I think it comes across the best. It has really good energy in the sort of, you know, the playing along bits. And then it's kind of a bit tongue in cheek and quite funny 
in a more natural way and not too forced. So I think in, in a lot of ways, that is a, a very good video. In my opinion, that's our best video. Ear Protect on Instagram says, what was your favorite gig? I saw you loads of times in the Northeast. And he says he misses you a lot, apparently. Well, I mean, you know, I'm not going to lie. I miss definitely playing live a lot. It's, 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 it, was, it was definitely the best of times. Um, favorite gig I did actually write something down I felt like I was doing homework when you sent me that <laughs> I, I, um, that was the, the hyper I mean I think I think most of the gigs were great I mean nor, the North was always really good like Hull we played loads that was great um, it was just a different time it felt like everyone was just like really up for watching bands play and actually getting into it it never felt like nowadays i haven't been to a gig in a while but like there was a time when it was like oh is anyone actually enjoying this or they're just sort of looking around waiting for other people to have fun um i definitely would say as i said earlier the small gigs were by far the fun i mean the sweat just like sweaty old messy venues like i remember playing newcastle uni once and like just like everyone going completely crazy. And then I remember walking around the venue after and just seeing so many shoes, like singular <laughs> shoes. And I'm like, who the hell's who the hell loses their shoe? And then just like, like where are all, you know, where's everyone else's shoe? Like, what did they do? <laughs> Maybe that's me being practical pig. I was like, that does seem a bit mentally. <laughs> but that happened all the time, you know, people just you know, let, let themselves go a bit. You know, we always had a good mosh pit. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember everywhere. Festival, I mean, festivals were good. We played Bene Kassim in Spain at like four in the morning, which was really good. Uh, we closed, I don't know how this happened. We closed the main stage. Uh, I mean, not that we're headlining, although I think Alan did say thank you to Depeche Mode supporting <laughs> they were actually headlining um yeah we were playing like four in the morning because their sort of lineup is like back to front so the headliners play like at like midnight or something it's quite a late festival and then we played but like everyone you know it was like 20 25 people just going completely crazy i think it was like last night or second to last night at the festival um and like that's definitely a highlight we were never good in the daytime i would say um, got a random one from it's, <laughs> someone I can't call it, it's Ben, not David. And he says, uh, I know who that is. He just says, Ben Dodd. Did he ever meet Moby dressed in a toga? Yes, he did. That is true. That is true, Ben. In fact, I think that might have been, I think that might actually have been Ben Stack himself. So Ben, ben was a uni friend of Alan and Jamie from Brighton. And uh, and really really lovely guy, but um, as as happens on tour, you miss certain events. So um, Alan Jamie couldn't make his stack, so therefore thought of the brilliant idea of basically we just we had a, a run of festivals and then basically just took him on tour with us for a week, um, of which I think we wore togas for the whole entire time. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, which in itself is like sort of jovial and unprofessional, but at the same time, it was really funny. 
uh, <laughs> we did all the shows and you know not in togas um but yeah we did uh i can't remember i think it was called hurricane festival in germany and moby was playing as well and obviously we had to get a photo with him all still dressed in a toga and moby most likely was like who the fuck are these guys <laughs> yeah. i think also katie perry was playing and we managed to get a photo with her ben ben's gonna have to 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 remember whether he got a photo with katie perry as well <laughs> um, but yeah quite quite unusual <laughs> yeah. we yeah we we always had sort of stragglers of, of various kind we had a guy we had a friend of ours um robbie or mark he always went by two different names i don't know why I've never actually found out whether his name was actually Robbie or actually Mark, but he, we met him on a, one of our video shoots because uh, he did hair and he became a really good friend. And then he came to watch us play in, I think in Amsterdam. And then we had a big party after the show, went back in the bus and everyone like partied. And then he, he obviously just like fell asleep on the bus and then woke up and we were we were in like somewhere in Germany and he was like, fuck. <laughs> and then I think he called, he worked at some salon in, in East London. And he was like, I, I'm, I'm now on tour. Like, so, he, cause it's not that easy cause you're constantly moving. So he was like, I'm sort of stuck here. So he just there and then took some time off. And then he, I think he stayed with us for a week or, or two. Um, and we made him, after at the end of every set we made him play one note on the triangle as the closing so we'd have this big like over the we i think we used to close at that time with where uh, the world was a mess and we'd have this like big kind of bombastic sort of um crescendo and then he would just walk on stage with a triangle and do one thing and then walk off again again very jovial but you know, what else are you going to do? You've got to have some fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, we would, we would occasionally have random people coming on tour with us. So, yes. Yes. So the, the short answer is, yes, Ben, you did meet Moby in the Togo. <laughs> yeah, it's the third album that you mentioned recording it in Berlin, and I read a quote from one of the bands, um, not sure who it was just said like the london music scene at the time was very dull and it was like wading through a swamp of shit <laughs> it wanted to be somewhere more inspiring yeah i think that was basically our i think we were all just a bit i think it was around the time that the 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 sort of the death blow uh of of the indie what was it called the indie landfill mm. got tugged around and it just felt like everyone I think also from what we had been through on the second record of just being like feeling a bit like out of touch with what rec what we were actually doing as a band and that we weren't really happy with the everything. Um, I think we were like, hang on a minute, why are we, you know, constantly trying radio this and like getting on the radio, Radio 1. I think Six Music had just started happening then. Um, and then it was like, actually, you know, we just need to get out of here and not feel like we were part of this thing. So we wrote, or we wrote all this, we basically wrote all the songs completely, very much unlike the, the second record, uh, down to like minute details and literally cut 
I mean, cut, we demoed loads of stuff and then we went through it again, cut loads of stuff away. Uh, and literally it was like, it's this middle eight, two bars too long, like cut it. I mean, as you can see, the band, the, the record itself is like less than half an hour long. Um, it was very, it was just like a completely different method of just being like, actually, this is, you know, this is a good way of, 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 of writing, of just being like, exactly how we should should think about it if it's if it's there for a reason we keep it if it's not let's get rid mm. uh lyrically i think al wanted to be a bit more ambiguous as well uh and, and get a bit of weirdness in there uh, mainly about there's quite a lot about like feminism and like sexuality and yeah weird sort of like just a few little weird vibes here and there. Um, and then we were very inspired. I think uh, we were really into like Bowie and Iggy's sort of uh, journey together when they went to Berlin. Obviously, you can't relive that. It's like a different, it's a different city. I mean, it's completely different now to when it was when we went there. Um, but we did find a really incredible recording space. I can't remember how it came about, called the Funk House. I don't even know if it still exists, but it was um, it was like the recording. The stu- it did like uh, radio plays for the East uh, East uh, German radio, and it had basically just been like left on the day that the wall came down, and people just literally like they had like an office building next door, and you could go around and you could you could just see like these offices where people there still like cups of tea and like people's pens, and you know people had literally just got up and walked out. And it was still like derelict. No, in Berlin now it's definitely not like that. They probably have like sold the flats or something because been commercialized quite a bit. But it was this like incredible old building, and it had the studio itself was unbelievable. It had various like incredible live rooms. Uh, it had like this weird dead room where they record like outside sounds. So you could if you listen on. Uh, bitching in the kitchen there's like this weird sort of gravel pit walking Uh, it had like weird caves and it also had a whole nother section of like uh, orchestral enormous recording um, space like and again the acoustic just unbelievable like you could record it like a band in there it would probably sound amazing and you could control it quite a lot Um, so that's sort of how it came about. And then we just, we just went there with Chris Sane, who just got it. Uh, he'd done the Savvy Fab. And we just really liked the sort of rawness. And it didn't feel, it didn't feel like he was part and doing any like real London bands of trying to be like indie this or indie that or trying to get on the radio. He just really got into the songs and he just got it. And he just recorded us. And we we'd done all the songs to such tea that I think we we ended in the end. We, I think we we did the whole record in like two weeks, maybe. We did like a track a day, start to finish, and then just like went through them. And we played we played super live, just a click, minimal cleanup, um, and then yeah, it was just super super raw, um, and it was really fun. And then occasionally we'd go out in Berlin and have a good time as well. Is it quite refreshing to be over there kind of thing? 
It really was. I think also because it was like, you know, we, there was definitely a, a feeling of being a bit dis- disheartened by, you know, you get a bit of backlash when people, you know, it doesn't go your way and like, oh, I weren't into that. Um, so, yeah, it was just nice of being out of that sort of London bubble and just doing your own thing. Um, and also the, the UK music scene at that time was just moving incredibly fast as well. People were into something every, you know, one, you know, it was probably one thing and then we came back from Berlin and everyone was like, oh my God, have you heard the, the Tweety Woos or whatever? It's <laughs> uh, like, no, it's like, I've been, I've been in Berlin. It's like, wow, oh my God, they're the next big thing or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the whole, it's like everything just like collapsed. Um, you know, everyone was like, actually, what about electronic music? You know, it's like, oh my God, have you heard of keyboards? That's so cool. <laughs> so then everything sort of changed. Um, but it was, yeah, it was nice to just be allowed to do your own thing. Um, and we did. And, and, you know, it definitely felt like quite a few people were connecting with it. Um, but it was hard. It was definitely the beginning of like, of being that sort of in-between stage of like not really having radio on your side and not really having anywhere else to to get out there and it's like you know you didn't have so it was yeah i feel like six music must have definitely been going at that point yeah it would have um so yeah it definitely it definitely didn't go as well commercially but it was nice to release something that we were all really happy with. Yeah, um, someone called Record Culture on Twitter said, like, where, how do you rank the albums in terms of how happy you were as a band with them kind of thing? I think as, a, as, a, as how happy we were as a band with them, I would definitely say think that Klang is, Klang is number one, and then the first one is number two, and then the second one is number three. Just... just Purely from a perspective of, of that, it felt that we were being being honest to who we were, and it was just like really nice um, to not care too much about record companies and all that sort of stuff. I was watching a really enjoying video on YouTube of a festival you did in two thousand and nine in in France, um, and like you just had a really like great live performance. Was that something that came with time, or did you kind of like practice how you wanted it to come across? Oh, what the lives the live show in general yeah just like it seemed really tight and really i don't know it just seemed really slick kind of thing yeah i mean we toured a lot i think the thing is we just we fucking just toured and toured, yeah. and, toured. and i think it just naturally comes to uh just comes to a gelling and you just you just find ways of going into other things we also got chris who was our sort of session guy who also recorded with us in Berlin. Uh, he came on board and did like piano and keyboards and extra guitar, um, which which really helped, especially on like say, bigger festivals or just bigger gigs in general, because being essentially a, like a post-punk or whatever, indie, I don't know what, I don't know, what's the term these days? Um, <laughs> um, like you need, you need a bit more beefing when you're playing these like, bigger venues and and we there were those sort of extra parts on some of the songs and it really helped to sort of put it all together but by no means i would say it was it definitely wasn't like a, a big production 
of any kind. It was very much just like, how are we going to put these songs together? I think sometimes I wish, you know, when I occasionally have, have sort of dipped in and seen these like um, live takes again, you, I feel it'd be nice to have some of the slower songs a bit more. It, it feels like we were trying to cram in as much as we could in that fucking hour slot we had. I've just been like, let's just like pound the shit out of everything as fast as we can and make sure everyone has a good time. But like shows sometimes can be about other things. So, you know, like you said, Leave the City. We, I mean, we never played it live, I don't think even once. It would have sat so weirdly. But at the same time, our live shows were so much about just having like this really intense energy. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was quite a, it was quite a rush. I definitely remember feeling quite sick after a lot of gigs, just from like the sheer exhaustion of it. Because uh, it, there was not much breaks. It wasn't like big pauses in between songs or anything. It's just like, okay, this one's done. Get into the next one. <laughs> like seg segue into the next one, or like you know. Uh, but yeah, it was good. I think also, yeah, as you progress, you also want to do some of these. But again, I mean, so we did, we did a, uh, weird enough with Moby again, it wasn't that one where we dressed in togas. We did a festival in France um, and it, <laughs> we turned up to this festival. Uh, there's a couple of funny stories actually. I feel like I'm not, I loved our tour manager, but there were a couple of things where we were like, hang on a minute. He got his finger quite on the poles here. <laughs> so this, that, that was one of them. We turned up to this festival and we we're playing this festival and we're like what's going on this is why are we playing so late what sort of festival anyway it turns out we're headlining this festival with moby right. so they have like alternating stages and we're on so moby's on and then we're on and we're like so hang on we're we're headlining this enormous festival of like i think it's like fifteen thousand people but nobody had told us and it just again felt like what the hell are we doing like why like could someone not have just like been like, by the way, guys, you're doing this. <laughs> so again, probably, probably not quite as professional as it could have been. Um, this story isn't quite as bad as the time we turned up for a gig and our, we turned up, we were on at like midday. The whole crew was like stressing, running around. Um, and it felt like the festival was only just coming together. Everyone's running around. Our stage guy was like yelling at people on stage, like, what's going on? We're on it like, we're on it like an hour. Doesn't feel right. And then it turned out our, our, um, our tour manager had got AM and PM mixed up. <laughs> we're, on at, we're on at midnight. Um, right. So yeah, these things go wrong. Again, back to the spinal tap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then you obviously like calling it a day, like the quote from that Alan put out saying, if we can't give it everything, then we're not going to do it. Is that something you all felt at the time or how did it work? Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, when bands split up, there's a, there's a lot more, more to it, but I don't want to sour anyone's porridge, whatever you say. But um, one day, maybe the, the long, boring story will come out. But there was definitely, I think the part of it was that... It, yeah, it's probably, it's true. I think we couldn't all maybe put in 100% anymore. And therefore, 
as as Al rightly said, is like, what is the point? You know, I think again, it, it, a lot of it stems back to that second record. Is like, you know, we'd made a third record and we'd made sure that we wanted to do it for the right reasons, and not not sort of delve back into to um, the sort of easiness of like trying trying too hard to to get into various pop records. Um, yeah, I think that's the that's the the PC version. And you know, a lot of people asked, you know, what are the chances reunion gig? I mean, I think it's not, let's just say it's not in my accord. Um, I mean, it'd be fun. Although I don't have my drums anymore, but um, yeah, who knows? I don't know. Is it too late? How old are we? How old, are, how old can you be? <laughs> I think there's plenty yeah. of time. Before you're 50, surely that's fine, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm 40 this year, so <laughs> I flies. How did that happen? But yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe one day. That's the thing. As you said, would we have done anything different? I definitely, you know, you have to look at your, you have to look at your behavior in, in, in sort of different, different view when you get older. And then you probably would have done certain things differently. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe one day. I don't fucking know. <laughs> yeah, fair play, man. I mean, I, d- I doubt somebody's going to pay us a million quid to reform, like fucking, <laughs> I don't know, Genesis or something. <laughs> Even Genesis, Phil, is Phil Collins still doing anything? Oh, he's not feeling too well. So. Yeah, I heard he played some gigs last summer, but yeah, he's, he's got an illness, hasn't he? I don't know. Yeah. Um. So if he can do it, then. <laughs> okay. Who else Quite a few people have reformed, haven't they? What, from that era? Yeah. Yeah, I mean the Paddingtons have done some gigs. Um They never really broke up though, did they? No, I suppose they didn't have like a big breakup kind of thing. Uh yeah. Don't know yet. Like block party you get bands doing those tours, like album tours, don't you? Like Block Party did a silent alarm tour. Yeah, I mean they're they're still going. They've got a new record out. Yeah. Um but I mean there's only half of them left. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think Razorlight have got the old original crew back together or something like that. Really, Razorlight. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's that's something. I wouldn't thought that happened. I mean, that was quite a spectacular breakdown. Um, Maximum Park, they're still going. They actually released a really good record. Um, so they're still going. Yeah. Future Heads, are they still going? I feel like they. Yeah, got yeah. Yeah. Cribs are still going. Oh yeah, Cribs. Judging from yeah. the questions, you know, people be. Loving it if you did do it. Maybe we'll have to, uh, we need to have an intervention. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, just people should invite you to the same place without letting you know, kind of thing, yeah. Uh, exactly. <laughs> oh, this is terrible. <laughs> yeah, yes, flute. Ooh. <laughs> did so you carry on playing these band called Wolfgang? I read. Yeah, so I actually I I left the rakes and then I think I think it might have been like two weeks later, joined Wolfgang. It wasn't more than that, and then, and basically, first it's like a session type uh, gig, and then it sort of merged into yeah, fully fledged um, band. Uh, did did well, Max, who's the lead singer, did the first record, and then we did second record altogether. Um, so I sort of got that out of me. I mean, I would definitely say that having. Having done the first thing, this was like a very different, it was like major label, very pop, 
which was fun you know i think you can you can dabble in in a few different things um massive tours much more production and i definitely learned a lot in terms of just like playing style and how to put on shows and you know all that um i am definitely grateful for like having having been a part of that as well i mean you can't really can't really complain if you've managed to to wangle your way into two bands and recording records mm, yeah so yeah it was great um yeah toured loads i mean toured even more toured loads in america supported like massive bands and like it took it was supporting Coldplay out of everyone um around america which was good um yeah just a different kettle of fish really it's different it was interesting to just see it from a completely different way of of starting because you know it was very much like you know songs had to be there then you build the live show around that which was like so opposite to what we were we had been doing um with the rakes of just like you know building it naturally up so yeah i think but it was good and i've i definitely felt a I felt there was an element that I could bring to to Wolfgang of having of how important it was for 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 that live sound and the energy that you could have with that and create with it. Even though it's it's different music, you can still get that feeling, and we definitely did that, um, despite it being a different type of music and more poppy. And at what point did he kind of get involved in the the restaurant stuff? Yeah, so now I'm a chef. Uh, I think I'd always sort of lurked around and I, whenever I wasn't on tour, I would be cooking and just doing like, like dinner parties for like, like, you know, like having people around for dinner and cooking loads of food. And then it just was like, I just, I'd been touring for like, you know, maybe like 10 years, more than 10 years, 12 years, I think. And I was just like, I didn't want to tour anymore and be away all the time. So I managed to somehow get into a line of work where I'm basically just working all the time. So it's like completely the opposite. Um, and in some ways it's quite similar, you know, you go in, you do your prep, which is a bit like a sound check, and then you do the service, which is a bit like a gig. <laughs> um, so some, some elements are quite similar, which is great. Um, I really love it. And the biggest difference and one of the biggest things i love so much about it is that the creative sort of element is so instant um i think sometimes the problem with music is you procrastinate over it and you overthink it and then you draw it back and you you know that sort of instantness you have in in food that you you make something and you send it out and you get instant feedback and then you can change it or you can leave it or you can do something else. It's really satisfying. Whereas music, you know, I think, you know, you can spend two years or, you know, people spend like 10 years making a record and then people can be like in an instant go like, yeah, I heard that. That's shit. <laughs> and then you go like, fuck, I've just spent 10 years on this, you know, or you can spend 10 years and it's really good. Like you can, it obviously goes both ways, but it's like, I just love that instant creative process. Um, would be nice if music was a bit more like that. Mm. Uh, you know, there is definitely a, a one of the bands that we with Wolfgang that we toured with, um, who is an, an American band called Slight. They're trying to do things a bit different and literally just 
you know, creating music, releasing them themselves. Um, and in that way, sort of, you know, trying to have that more immediate thing rather than having these like crazy album cycles. Um, it's really hard because people consume music so differently. You know, I love every album. Yeah, I think it's so nice to listen to a whole record. Uh, singles are great, but like you can't beat a whole al album and you can't, you can't just come up with an album and release the day after sort of thing. So I think it will be hard. I don't know. Who knows what the future of music is? And um, what's the name of your restaurant if people want to come try it? It's, uh, oh God, I shouldn't say this. Um, oh, so it's here, yeah. <laughs> it's called Llewellyn's. It's down in Hern Hill. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, in Bri down near Brixton. Then, yeah, just one last one to finish on that I sent you. Like, if you did have a funny story about the Gallag Brothers or just maybe a big name in music. I mean, you're giving us some already, obviously. I do, I do actually have one with Noel Gallagher, which was a very early... We we did well, our very first TV performance. We did um, with... What's his name? Tim with Tim Lovejoy. Did this thing called Tim Lovejoy and the All-Stars. It was like... It was sort of like trying to combine music and football in some some crazy way. And Tim was like... A, he was early really into the bands, and then he was like... So I'll oh, come on this band. And we were like super new, uh, brand new band. So it was us. Um, the Happy Mondays were playing as well. And then Noel Gallagher was on the program as well. Uh, and so we did this sort of music bit and then we were, we were watching the sort of playback. And then Tim sort of interviews Noel Gallagher. Uh, and they do like a cop thing where they've seen us on there. They're sitting at a sort of opposite each other and then there's a scream. They watch our performance. Um, and then Tim goes to Noel, so have you seen any new great bands recently? And Noel looks at the screen and then looks back at Tim and then he says, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that was the scathing sort of like, all oh, right, okay, cheers, Noel. <laughs> but, you know, you got, you know, hands down, bit of honesty. Well, he probably didn't want to miss that moment to crack a gag, did he? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. But I think like, I like that. I mean, I'm not. I've never been an Oasis fan, and I'm, you know, I'm not really into neither the side projects. Um, but they're fucking funny. I mean, you can't you can't take that away. <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's really refreshing. Everyone is always so. I think that's the thing. Is like you've got to like that sort of you know genuine humor that you can get away with anything just like really rings up and it's like the sort of swagger but it doesn't feel like it's put on it's just like so it's just like comedy gold all the time which is brilliant so yeah Vodka on your breath.